0: Michael Hearn, four-time Mr. Universe, Hall of Famer, actor, TV personality. He says, uh, when Helen Keller was asked, what would be worse than being born blind? She replied, the only thing worse than being blind is to have sight without vision. Read this book if you want to find a vision for your life. So it's a story, but it's every chapter is laced with philosophy that I've developed and that you can put into place in your life.
1: You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. So today we're sitting down with Chris Duffin of Kabuki Strength, and you have some tremendous strength feats under your belt. And interestingly enough, when we show our patients in New York, what is a brace? What does it mean to breathe down into the abdomen? I show them your YouTube video of your one thousand and two pound is it sumo deadlift for two yeah. reps? Yep. yeah, so welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I'm super excited to sit down and chat.
0: Yeah, I'm excited to, to to talk as well. And you know that that video or you look at some of my squat videos, it's an interesting discussion. I, I like to I'm very much I want to walk the walk and not just be a theoretical person and and I want to practice it myself. And you'll notice a lot of times people I call it the balance of extremes. So people go, well, if I'm going to go all out, you know, it doesn't matter. Anything goes it's, you know, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be whatever. And I said, no, no, I need, it should be absolutely perfect and you should put everything into it. It's not one or the other or giving up like it's, it's both. And that's how we, that's how we create balances through managing those extremes. And, uh, you'll notice like I almost tripled a thousand pounds. I'm the only person at any body weight, any type of deadlift anywhere in the, in the history of, that has ever done reps with over a thousand pounds. And I went to failure and I couldn't finish that third rep, but there's no break whatsoever in that stacked torso position. I've got another video of me, like it's not often I, I fail on squats, uh, but I was going for an all-time world record. I don't do previously, it got beaten by a friend of mine and uh, it was a 915 pound squat. And I go down into the hole, I come out of the hole like a couple inches, I start going up and then I just sink back down in. And there's no break whatsoever in stacked torso position. And if you maintain that, all your upstream, downstream, all those things like work and operate in a much better system. It really does come down to you know that balance of understanding how the diaphragm is used for both stabilization through creating intra pressurization and respiration. Actually, Dr. Uh, Richard Olm has, has a great infographic on this that I steal all the time of a dial setting. You know, if you're going to run a marathon, you're going to, you know, it's a, you know, it's a hot and cold dial, right? And so this one is no balance of extremes because it's one resource and you've got one or the other. So obviously if I'm doing a, a major lift, like a thousand pound deadlift or a 900 pound squat, I'm going to be using that full stabilization, every ounce of it. And uh, there's not going to be respiration during that. But if you're running a marathon, you're going to be all the way to the other end of the dial, except you, know, you always have some level of IAP. Uh, otherwise, you just turn into a noodle and fall down. Right. But, uh, but yeah. respiration is going to be your key in those instances.
1: So I was introduced to you through Rich Ulm. I took a DNS exercise weightlifting course a couple years ago. And I think your name got brought up like 20 to 30 times. And I was like, I got to check this guy out, which is, I used to also live in Portland. So I'm like, how how could I have not uh, come across Kabuki strength? So I'm curious, since you have been exposed and taken dynamic neuromuscular stabilization and DNS and know the effects of the intra-abdominal brace, the effects of the diaphragm, how has that changed, maybe your perspective or how you've worked with clients?
0: Well, one, I don't personally work with <laughs> with clients, but we we have a team of people that does. Right. And it's been an evolution over a number of years, and uh, I've been through, yeah, all the DNS. I'm certified or something too. I don't know. Oh, uh, nice. But but <laughs> I don't pay attention to that stuff. <laughs> um, It truly has had an incredible impact on my personal performance and then working with people in, we've continued to, to refine, develop. And I I think what the interesting thing is when I started taking DNS, DNS was very, very anti lifting. I think it's getting less and less, less so. I know I met and worked with a lot of the, most of the DNS instructors at this point. And, uh, and I think that that's, that's kind of shifting because my view is you can actually see the breakdown easier during basic core loaded movements than in some sort of corrective type position of trying to mass. You can win the, we call it winning the drill. That's, uh, that's what I reference is. So our goal isn't for you to win the drill. It's to be able to practice it as skill development, you know, in those corrective positions, you know, maybe do some resets, whatever we're finding through that assessment that we want to focus on. But it's more of a skill development practice and then we want to actually practice strengthen and really assess that when we get into these basic patterns and it's really surprising for me like how much upstream and downstream change that we can bring about from those principles eliminating knee pain obviously huge impact on back i think that's kind of the biggest biggest area that most people really really get wrong is they believe air is a brace. They have they fill the giant belly or they brace all with that outer sheath of, you know, which is truly what you're bracing is. I feel starting with IAP, you're going to naturally, you don't have to actually practice to brace. If you put a heavy weight on your back, say you've got a five, you know, well, 500 pounds is your squat max. The only thing that you really need to focus on is creating great IAP to start with, there's a lot of other steps to the lifting, right? But the actual contraction of the outer sheath is something that's just going to happen. And people overly focus on the brace first. And if you focus on the, th- that contraction first, you're not going to be able to expand outward efficiently to get that. So those are just, you know, some of the uh, areas that we start with when we go to the foot next is, is, is our prior- in our, our priority. So we always yeah. start with this because spinal mechanics affect everything. <laughs> And you know if if you don't have the spine in good position and stabilize well, you could work on you know shoulder mobility all day long and you're you know if you 're in kyphosis or an extension like it completely changes how that scapula is moving, what your flexion and extension is, and so on and so it 's like people people get so caught up in looking downstream my knees are caving. I'm rounding, you know, I'm going into flexion in the hole. How do I eliminate my butt wink? It's like, well, you're broke to start with, you know. The, the, the <laughs> first thing you did was, you know, right off the bat was you went and grabbed that bar and pulled in and raised your chest. And the, or, you know, the first thing you did when you went to squat is you shot your hips back, but you actually rotated the pelvis back. So clearly you didn't have that locked in, or if you did, you let loose and let it go right there instantaneously in the first fraction of a second. So you're focusing on trying to fix something in the hole, but it started because we just weren't standing properly. We weren't standing and initiating that IAP and, and, and managing that. And then, you know, if you take that and the foot, like so much of you know, chasing what I call triage work just kind of disappears or coaching of the peripheral. So we really try to not coach the peripheral so much as coaching, like what is going to drive all those, all those things and trying yeah. to pare it down to less things to focus on. You don't need 30 steps to deadlift. Okay.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about the foot. Right, right.
0: Love to talk about the foot.
1: <laughs> let's talk about the foot. Cause I noticed you posted something recently, which I loved, which is like, if you're having potential knee or hip pain, I think it was in the squat, look at the foot and you had two drawings. one was like a nice white foot, another foot looked like it was stuck in like a Italian business shoe. <laughs> well,
0: unfortunately, mo- most people you, uh, you have them take their shoes off and their feet look like that because shoes yeah. are built for you know fashion, not for function and so we go walking around all the time with this packed up foot and it ends up creating problems. And so when I start talking feet and like I did a, several posts over the weekend and then followed it up with a nice video on Monday on some a nice, nice little corrective that you could uh, work in place. And it's all about for me is like getting good spread, not overly spread, but being able to spread and control the front of the foot. And then from there, we don't want to see people start like grabbing the ground because, you know, a lot of rooting stuff that you see out there is grip and twist the ground. Well, that feels great when you're in the standing position. The glutes fire really hard, but as soon as you break and start hinging at the hips, the ability to do that disappears. The other that grabbing that ground is we start using the toes, pulling into flexion and to create our stabilization. Guess what? Those toes are not very strong. Okay. (laughs) So we want the toes spread and we want the support to come across the pads of where the toes connect to the foot. So just getting those feet operating correctly. And then So many people focus on the knee. They're like, the knees are caving. Got to go knees out. Got to go knees out. And we focus on stacking the ankle. And I think this is critical is understanding that ankle needs to be stacked over the top of the foot, right? And so to do that with some people, it's going to naturally create, like if they've got a flat foot, that'll draw up actively. And this is really important. And I'll go on to why. Why? Or we could just go knees out, and that you know we could be rolling onto that out to that outward metatarsal line, and the inner you know foot picking up, right? All sorts of things, you know. If you're watching the feet, seeing the toes pick up, will tell you a lot about what's going on. Anytime that that happens, where we're back on the heel with the most of our weight, we know that we're not getting you know the hip extensors, the uh, the glutes, the firing the way that they 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 need to. It just can't happen. So there's so much that can tell us what's going on, but also that's how we fix a lot of these issues, though, is correcting that. And, and I mentioned the actively because every time I throw this up, like everybody points out, that's great. I've got these awesome arch supports and I've got the toe spreaders and I've got the da da da. Can you promote this stuff? I'm like, no, no. A, a toe spreader is a passive approach. You in arch support, yeah. I, I've had people with flat arches with significant knee pain and I have them remove their arches and knee pain goes away, but I have to teach them how to actually actively control the foot because building an arch passively doesn't actually fix the root issue. The root issue is we don't have a strong foot. So you know, I'm going to go into a little bit of rant here. It might've <laughs> might been in the, po- the post, but like everybody in weightlifting, powerlifting, all sorts of sports... They're always chasing dorsiflexion. I don't, I got to have my special shoes because I don't have dorsiflexion. I can't go that deep because I don't have, to. I've got to add, it's mobility. You got to balance your mobility. You know, we, we, we strength train, you know, we got to do just as much time on mobility. I'm like, well, let's think about this for a second. Why do you think that the foot is lacking dorsiflexion? Maybe because it's weak. And so we're at the ankle joint, the body's starting to tighten to control to protect you. Okay. You can't stack. So if you sit there and mobilize that dorsiflexure and you still have a weak foot, now you're stacking weakness on top of instability. This is a recipe for disaster. Now you're going to go into a range that the body was trying to protect you from because you were weak in those areas. And so you know, the best way to do that is to go back and strength, learn to strengthen and control the foot. And if we do that and we keep that ankle stack and we manage the foot position, we're going to see so much. And as you do this, so we have a website, uh, it's a subscription-based uh, movement web portal, just quick, quick plug for it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it. Uh, kabuki.ms, www.kabuki.ms for movement systems. Or you can just find it on kabuki.education. And we've got a link tree with all of our education resources on there. Yes. Um, but we, we have some really great advanced rooting drills on there that teach you and walk you through how to do this under load. So I, I could sit there, you know, somebody comes in and goes, hey, you know, glutes not firing and we do a sideline glute test. Yeah, it's not working right, blah, 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 blah. You know, We go down that whole path or I could just have them squat without shoes on, see immediately what's going on. Boom! put a little pressure on the pad below the, you know, the the big toe and say, drive this down during the squat, because that's why I see it all of a sudden, boom, knee pain's gone, squat power's gone up. Like I don't have to go anywhere else. I don't have to do like this, all this other stuff. So that's our goal for me. And this gets down to a basic philosophy standpoint is that we as human beings adapt to stress. Okay. So stressors come at us and this is how we live and grow. Okay, this is not strength training. This is life. This is this is emotional well being, spiritual well being, becoming you know more mentally stronger, right? All this all this comes to coming down and managing those stressors. Obviously, if we stress too much, we die. You know, if we don't have an opportunity to recover from that. But this is where I get my problematic with you know both the the passive modalities and then just getting lost. I love DNS, and we incorporate like that's probably one of the biggest fundamental pieces that we start with is DNS philosophies, but you go to a lot of people that are trained in it and they'll spend, you know, all this time down this rabbit hole of doing correctives and other stuff. And it's like, okay, I'm sorry, but anybody that's got some level of physical activity, these body weight movements are not applying a stress. And this is why earlier I said it's skill development. It's practicing proprioceptive awareness of positions and joint positions and And yeah, maybe we can do some neurological resets in some of those positions, but I can actually do all that while I'm applying stress and growing and becoming stronger and adapting and creating change. Because if we do in those and it's non-stressful, we're not creating any stimulus for change.
1: when you mean adding a stressor, you mean like under load? Under load, yeah. Under
0: load, yeah. Under load. So we want to get back to that point as soon as possible. I'm not saying that you don't need to go down that rabbit hole because sometimes you will. But the goal would be, how do I actually see this stuff in whatever basic movement these athletes are working in? Right. How do I see it in that and correct it in that with never going anywhere else? Yeah. It's fun to perform magic tricks and everybody loves learning all this stuff and wants to go boom, 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 and, and perform some magic tricks on the table in front of everybody. And there's a time and place for that. But at the end of the day, it's like, how do we get this back and make this into a squat? a basic movement pattern, a deadlift. Everybody has to know how to deadlift. Everyone. Okay? Yes. You, Thank you
1: for saying that.
0: <laughs> I mean, what's the first thing? Like the clinicians that I work with, you know, the first thing that comes in 65 year old, you know, sedentary grandmother comes in, they're in back pain. They can't pick up their baby grandkid because of that. The first thing that they do in those sessions is have them deadlifting by the end of the, that session. Okay. Amazing. And, and this isn't a clinical environment maybe yeah. a 35 pound kettlebell. It doesn't mean like load up a bar and like, you know, put something and get, you'll have people in tears of happiness because yeah. they've learned how to manage and do it themselves. And they know the impact on their life. Everybody's got to pick up the groceries, something on the floor, the baby, the whatever, like that, that's a deadlift. And every human being in the world needs to know how to do a deadlift. Yeah. We're not talking barbell deadlift, but that basic, you know, hinging pattern of picking something off the floor, right? So why would I want to spend a bunch of time if I can assess and correct in that movement and not go anywhere else? Hey, let's, let's bend a quick uh, primer on some IAP. Stabilize torso. Great. Let's manage the foot. Boom. Go in there. Okay. They don't understand hip hinging. Boom. Takes me 30 seconds to do that. Now, all of a sudden, we've got dramatic change. You know, you can take somebody that's walking around at a seven or eight on the pain scale for back, like, and all of a sudden get them to a a three, a two, a one. And they know how to actually manage and practice it themselves going forward. So this is is important stuff. And this is where I said, like, you know, not everybody's going to do what I do, but I can demonstrate that it really works, okay, at the highest level out there. And I think that's an important thing, particularly as I try to grasp, like, You know, I've got a lot of followers uh, through social media and a lot of them are young, you know, young kids. I say kids, you know, early, you know, mid twenties, whatever. And, uh, you know, selling them on the, uh, the injury side of it doesn't work. They're invincible. They don't care. So (laughs) so I I, I sell, I have to sell it on the performance side too, which it, it, it works. I mean, here's a, here's a straight piece from DNS. Maybe this is my analogy. I'm so my background is engineering. I've got a couple engineering degrees, a lot of process improvement stuff, ran companies, company turnarounds, all sorts of stuff for two decades. that's my background, so that's mm. probably why I have a, such a focus on biomechanics because it's it, it, just natural for me, right Yeah, so I do a lot of car analogies, and my favorite one <laughs> is new vehicles. My wife has one. I, she's got a little a little, uh, little bit mercedes benz uh, SUV right yeah, and uh, it's snowing over here right now, right. And so we live up on a hill, it's slippery, and uh, you you press that little snow button, traction control, and uh, all of a sudden, it stabilizes better, connects to the ground, and we're moving without slipping and sliding. We've reduced our chances for injury, okay? And this is exactly, but what people think happens with a, with a uh, traction control and what actually happens are two different things. A lot of people think that it's just taking the power from the wheel that's slipping and sending it to the wheel that's gripping. This is not what it does. It does the exact same thing that the human body does. We've got powertrain, our muscles, and stuff like that, right? We've got our connection to the ground, our feet, the tires on the car, and we've got a nervous system. And the car has a nervous system with sensors built into it that tie to the suspension on some vehicles. Definitely the, always the engine and the transmission on modern vehicles. And what they will do when you have the traction control on, is it will detune the power output of the vehicle and reduce the shift patterns. Okay. And when we reduce that performance level, now we're not going to risk injuring or so this is the car's protective mechanism for itself. Okay. And this is the exact same thing. If you go out and try to sprint on ice, guess what? You will not be able to put your full force into it. Not just because you're slipping like physically slipping, but the, the, the fact that you don't have a good grip on the ground, your body will detune. So the same thing, we've got our weak foot. Our weak foot is a, a bald tire with the traction control on, right? And so this car is gonna send slipping, the body's gonna send slipping, it's gonna detune, it's gonna start protecting. And that's why it's gonna limit that dorsiflexion to help prevent the risk of injury. It doesn't want you to crash and burn just like your, the, the system on your car. So I call it the traction control and we actually wanna turn it off because if we go, I build performance off-road race vehicles as a hobby. Uh, and, but you look at those or any sort of racing vehicle, high performance vehicle whatsoever, not a single one has traction control built into it. What do they have? A performance tuned suspension. Okay. Good connection to the ground. And when you put your pedal to the floor, you get 100%. So this is why when we put these principles, because people are blown away you're like, oh, I'm in pain and I'm squatting, you know, my max is a 450 squat. I'll pick real stories. You know, this is just people watching our video content, you know, what we see when we do seminars or work with people. Uh, So I haven't been able to squat for six months. I've been in severe back pain. I watched your videos. I went into the gym and tried it. And not only was I not in pain, but I hit 450 for a triple. And that's after not training for six months. So that's what happens when we turn the traction control off. Now add that up over time. Every training session, if you've got the traction control on, which most of us do at some level, we're not, there's never perfect patterning. If we've got that on on every training session, every week, every month, every year, every decade, what does that add up to? If you're under training, you're actually not not even training at your full potential. This is the performance side of it. You put this stuff in place, you're going to lift more. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that's 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 how I sell that uh, in those crowds, and it it works. I mean, we. I mean, now as a company, we do private consultations uh, for the staff of like all the top Major League Baseball teams, meeting with an NFL team here in a couple of weeks when I go down to doing spring training here in both Arizona and then in Florida to hit all the, the teams that we work with, collegiates strength teams like all over our staff works with. So we do a lot of, we've got our open public seminar series, but we work with a lot of people on a, on a private basis as well with these concepts. This is not powerlifting. This is human movement. And that's what, you know, because I used to powerlift and, you know, a lot of my coaching team all powerlifts. That's how we test and do our methodology and what we enjoy, but we're not a, we're not a powerlifting basis for what we do. It's not, this is, this is human movement and right. and it applies across the board. And I know you get that. Uh, yeah.
1: So. We have the same philosophy where oftentimes we'll see a mobility issue, right? That stuck ankle, the the knee that feels like it's compressing or there's pain. And we'll clean it up by putting stability in the right areas. Okay. And oftentimes we'll work with kind of newer trainers that have like the warm-up with their client is foam rolling the same areas every time or um or I even have clients who are like I stretch my calves
0: for oh, two yeah,
1: yeah. hours and I'm like maybe that's not the issue. So
0: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> what do you what do you like start to educate. Is it quality movement? Is it human movement that there's a Uh, quality
0: quality of movement is like our key principle. So I hammer them. We sell a bunch of tools that are similar to foam rolling tools, right? Yeah. We have an entire education platform around it. We've got scraping tools. We've got, you know, heavy weighted implements. We've got some fascial shearing implements. We, we have all this stuff. Okay. And I I tell people, I don't want you to use it. they're like, what? I'm like, well, if you need to use it, it's because it's it's triage work. Hey, you got a quad tight quad today, and it's squat day. Okay, and you're not going to be able to get in position. Okay, go ahead, clean that up, but understand that that's not the root of your issue. And so I tell people that your warm ups. I, I like to put parameters around it because I've seen so many people just go off the board with again the amount of stretching, mobility work, all this sort of stuff is. Okay, well one, we can tie back to, to DNS here is, we wanna find that painless dysfunction. That may not be their, their word, but that's what verbiage that we use. You've got the pain issue, right? But we've got a, we've got a compensation somewhere else that doesn't have, and we need to find and correct that. And that's gonna mostly come in the quality of movement. If you're moving well in squatting, you actually do not need, if I'm squatting well, I don't need to do any mobility work. Squatting is not gonna tighten the hips. Not gonna lose mobility in the ankles, none of this is gonna happen. Not squatting well will drive all this all this stuff to happen. So, so we want people to focus on the quality of movement. Quality of movement is king, and that's you know, that's the verbiage I use. This is this is our starting point, and so that's where we focus. And we go, okay, now we understand that we may have past history, other things have come up because of. You know, maybe we exceeded our loading capacity. That's a whole nother discussion because 80, 85% of injuries are actually from not from poor quality of movement, but actually advancing load tolerances too too fastly frequency volume. But uh, that's a whole nother stuff. Tim Gabbett has some great work on that, by the way. So um, if you're not familiar with Tim Gabbett, look up him. He's a, he's out of Australia, does a lot of stuff, but he's got a lot of research related to that. So, but I think it's anything over like a 10 or 15% increase in volume week to week will basically end up driving us into developing those compensations which then indeed develops injuries and so on. So I put some parameters around it. I say your movement prep should not exceed 9 minutes. So just single digits, yeah. 9 minutes, okay. Kelly Starrett Love says it. 10 minutes. I say 9 because I just want it in single digits. Pick two <laughs> or three your pick your two or three top items. And these may be Correct. Usually on a warm up, we're not focused on soft tissue work unless we must, or it's for the next day. But what are your three most, and it's usually stabilization drills that we're doing? Hottest priorities. I don't care if you got 20 issues. You can't fix 20 issues. Pick the three biggest ones, knock them out of the park, and then move to the next one. If you can't, and you're still doing the same stuff two or three months from now, you don't know what's wrong or you don't know how to fix it, please seek guidance. You could reach out to us. You could find great providers in your area, whatever it is, but you should not be sitting there foam rolling the same freaking IT band for nine months. It's not, that's a definition of insanity, right? So anyway, we put some parameters and we allow people a little bit more on off days. I'll say double that 18 minutes, three to four exercises. And that would be more of your soft tissue work. If you enjoy, you know, doing your, you know, stretching and stuff like that, mix that in, whatever, whatever, I I don't, I'm not that concerned, but uh, I I definitely don't want to mobilize the prime movers prior to, you know, a big training session. Right. So that's that I preference to do my soft tissue work immediately post session. I call it waiting till the last minute. Like, Hey, I've got to squat and I've got this problem and now I've got to fix it. Well, you're starting your training. You're warming me up for, for squatting. Why are you waiting? Have you waited till then? So recently I did a couple big feats over a length of time. I squatted 800 pounds every day for 30 days, which nobody's ever done. And then most recently I I deadlifted 400 kilograms, 880 pounds every single day for 17 days. Did you have
1: any low back extension compression?
0: (laughs) I had no low back pain. I'll tell you that. That's amazing. (laughs) I mean... But, Not
1: surprising, but I, I love that.
0: But <laughs> the, 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 on the squat in particular, I had some really bad tightening and issues around my right hip. So guess when I dealt with that? Immediately, like within, within the five minutes of finishing my squat, I was on the ground and I had my guys doing soft tissue work on me because I wanted to spend as much time as possible walking and moving well and feeling, you know, like I have a 24-hour window. I've got to do it right now so that I can otherwise... I'm going to be limping around, being in compensation, all this stuff immediately then. So that's, that's kind of to, to drive home that point. Don't wait. People are like, well, what were you doing before your squat? You know, I'm like, well, no, I did it the day before because immediately within like the, the soon as possible, I didn't want to wait 20 minutes because that'd be another 20 minutes of like being hobbled up. And then the other side of that is if you do any of that type of work, you want to have some sort of loading to teach the body that it's safe to move in that range. It doesn't have to be like a workout. But if i work on, you know, flexion to improve my overhead position, maybe I should grab a, after I do some soft tissue work, grab a kettlebell and walk around in an overhead position uh, with it to ingrain those patterns. And you're going to see much more success with that.
1: I love that. I'd love to talk about squatting. Our thought process is we start people with, you know, if they've never squatted with a front squat, just to kind of keep that stacking action. And then progress them if they want to a back squat. What do you, sometimes we see people who are back squatting super heavy but don't have a great brace or kind of lose their intra abdominal pressure at a point or get that extension compression and then are complaining about back pain. So I'm curious, right? Because with back squatting, you can obviously move heavier load. Like, where do you kind of negotiate?
0: Your approach is absolutely fantastic. So obviously anytime we have the load in front of us, what happens is, so goblet squat position. Everybody knows if you have somebody having trouble hitting depth, put the kettlebell in their hands and have them squat and they'll squat much better. And usually then you see changes in the in knee position, foot position, all this stuff, because it's going to improved spinal mechanics. A lot of people don't understand what's actually happening there. So when we put that load in front of us, the load is actually still in the exact same spot. It hasn't moved in front of your feet. It is still right above the midfoot. So the load's in the same spot, whether it's on your back, mm-hmm. on a front squat, or a goblet squat. What you've actually done is move your torso behind the weight. So we've allowed for more spinal uprighting, right? Yeah. Um, the other thing with a back squat, so back squats are pretty challenging, uh, particularly if you've got any sort of shoulder limitations because of that position, it's going to naturally put people into extension, particularly as they try to tighten or I can't get dive too far into squat technique stuff, or we'll, we'll spend <laughs> hours, we uh, another
1: hour. <laughs> yeah.
0: but, um, we put that weight in front of us when it's going to cue actually the, the bracing better. It's not going to try to. Throw you into extension at that TL junction, and then yeah, we've basically changed the spine position, allowing for more uprighting while cueing more engagement in the areas that we want. Right, so so absolutely fantastic. I honestly don't believe a straight bar is a good bar to squat with unless you're a competitive athlete that must use one. So I make specialty bars that improve those positions for yeah. that.
1: Reason. Yeah, yeah. Tell so, us about them.
0: So the Duffalo bar is one. It's a curved bar that drops the weight down and reduces the stress on the shoulder, particularly the bicep insertion, which a lot of people that have pain in the shoulders as lifters don't realize they think it's from their pressing. That's actually a lot of times from their squat and from that tightening of that bicep on the uh, proximal end. So it sits on the back better. So the straight bar kind of drives the shoulders forward a bit, uh, decentrating the joint, making it harder to stabilize, it can be harder to engage the lats. So the lats are an incredible spinal stabilizer that people miss. That is the connection between the shoulder and that lower spinal position into your brace, right? Into your yeah. IAP. And yeah. so if you don't have that, so Olympic lifters get this in sport specific stuff. I get, you're going to do because it's whatever. And so sometimes it has negative things, but they'll have a really, really, really tight hand position and it creates all this tightness in the shoulders and traps, but it never, it doesn't connect to the core. And so when you see the miss, where is it always at? Right there at that TL junction, rounding over at the top of a squat, and then a cascade of stuff happens bad after that. Well, why? Well, all that structure up top was tight, but it wasn't connected. And so if we actually move our hands out and actually do a lat pull down, where we draw our elbow towards our body with the bar, basically trying to pull it over your back, it will engage the lats and connect that system. And this is where you'll see like the people with uh, breathing for stabilization issues, they'll, they wow. unrack the bar, they'll take a big breath and you'll see the big shoulder raise. We've just immediately before we started to lift broke the chain. Okay. The other issue we'll see with a back squat is people trying to rotate the elbows down too much because that's a really common cue. Elbows down, elbows down. Well, you need elbows down to be able to do a lat pull down to get maximal lat engagement, but you'll notice they're not straight night. It's not the rotation. It's allowing them to be in a position. If they're behind you in a winged position, you're not going to be able to imagine doing a lat pull down in a winged position. You're not going to get lat engagement. But if we focus on just over rotating, one, that's going to throw us into extension pretty easily. Yeah. But we're actually not engaging the lats either. So just a couple things there. Uh, so the duffel, oh, yeah, I was talking about the duffel bar. So the duffel <laughs> bar puts you in a better position for that lat engagement, uh, doesn't decentrate the shoulder. All that's going to improve lumbar. You know, stabilization, uh, reduce the stresses, the negative stresses on the shoulder during the movement, and we can just focus on squatting and getting stronger. I designed it also with a bend so that it's basically the best training bar around because it causes some ulnar deviation at the wrist, which actually so it seats the shoulder. So if the if you put your hand out in front of you like you're going to do a push up, but the pad by your thumb, you actually push away from you because the bar is going to be farther away from you. You'll notice that it cues you into rotation. And, yeah. that, and so if you put it in somebody that's never even benched their hands and say, take this to your chest, back up and down, they'll groove a perfect pattern. It's when we lose it into internal rotation during pressing that all of our shoulder issues happen. And this bar takes it and gives you a greater range of motion while you do it. So I it's crazy. It. I have people that this is my favorite when I walk into a, a strength coach's, you know, collegiate professional, whatever. Cause the head strength coach always has shoulder problems, by the way. I always say, Hey, does anybody here have a uh, shoulder problems? And then it's like, Oh, I really points to the head coach. And I'm like, here, let's get you bench." He's like, I haven't been able to bench for like five years. I'm like, here, just try it. It like, no, that's going to hurt my shoulder. It's got extra range of motion. I'm like, ah, give it a try. That got walked through the concepts, throws a plate on there, hits some reps. Staff's got their jaws hanging. It's like, man, that feels good. Throws another plate on there. It's a 55 pound bar. So it's 245 pounds, knocks out some reps, everybody's like, what the hell? And I'm like, yeah, He's it, like, oh my God, that I had zero pain. I haven't, I haven't been able to take a, you know, a single plate to my chest without pain in forever. And, uh, this story is actually repeated many, many times. <laughs> so and <laughs> and then, you
1: develop this through your own injuries and just kind of be like, how can I do this better? Yes. Yeah.
0: And then uh, the next one is uh, this is a squat specific bar and you'll love this. This is called the transformer bar and it has 24 different load settings, actually 48, but only 24 are usable where oh. we actually can move the load in space. So if you're familiar with a safety squat bar, it's a s- squat bar with handles on it. One of the problems is the handles are always up high in this like rack position. So one, guess what? We're not going to get good lat engagement. How do you see people miss when they use a safety squat bar at the TL junction rounding? Okay, because we don't have good engagement. I mean, it's, it's pretty yeah. straightforward, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I draw the handles down with a couple different bends to put the elbows right beside you so that you can get that great engagement just by, boom, pulling it in. And then the ends are freed up so we can rotate. It's indexable, rotate into multiple different positions, six different positions in front of you. So I can mimic a front squat, a back squat, a camber bar squat. A goblet squat close, a goblet squat far away, just to name five of the Amazing. 24 load settings, right? And I can change the distance from center line. So it has four different settings that I can move it from the center line of the bar. So my best gym squat is 944 pounds with one of the more aggressive settings on this bar my best is 450 for a triple to show you like how difficult yeah. this thing can be can yeah. be and it's crazy like with those aggressive settings like you're just locked in there's that I mean that torso can't move and normally maybe like within an inch of breaking below parallel I'll start rounding into flexion with this bar I love it cuz you actually with the forward position you get more engagement through the posterior chain but you actually because of the torso position your ability to engage the quads through going through a greater range of motion is huge. I can squat all the way down until my, my hams are resting on my, on my calves with a perfectly uprighted spine and you squat through. So yeah, I'm only using, you know, three, 400 pounds in my workouts with them. And my legs are just like loving, like everything. So, so we I can, it. we can, we can actually change our engagement patterns. We can change our biomechanics. We can change things and fine tune it just for the specific lifter. Like when I go into the sports teams, I'll go to their no squat list of people and say, let's have them squat today. And they're like, okay, let like load up the bar. And you'll just like, I don't, I'm not a good salesman. I just, show people, I just, I just show <laughs> joy. Pretty, it's like, well, you know, because coaching a squat can be a difficult thing for some people. Yeah, totally. And and, uh, and with zero coaching, I can take somebody that they won't allow to squat due to either injury or, you know, their really long torso or just bad squat patterns in general and have people by adjusting and fine tuning where that load sits and how their body responds squatting perfectly and deeper than they've ever squatted before. And it's, you can just see that like, yeah, yeah, we, we need that. Like, and yeah. for clinical settings. So this is huge. Like I really believe this is an incredible clinical use bar for the rehabilitation process, the dialing in and really getting people. Cause you can just find that perfect you know spot for each of those clients based on, like I said, when I'm dealing with some of the sports, People like they're not your traditional lifters. They're not built. Some of them are just not built to be able to squat to depth because they've got this giant tor- long torso or, you know, just like these weird levers that make them successful in basketball, baseball, whatever. But we can just completely work around that.
1: We get a lot of questions about weight belts. Like when should I start wearing one? Should I wear one? Can you speak to that? And then also maybe some common mistakes or myths with absolutely. Wearing one? I mean, I have someone who asked me yesterday and she's deadlifting below like her own body weight. And I was like, well, like, we might need to just work on your mechanics and proper joint loading and your brace instead of making you feel like you need to wear a weight belt. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, there's something that can be done, an argument that can be placed either way. So a weight belt worn properly can actually be a great extrinsic cue. 360 degrees inflation all the way around. Can you feel it? Can you feel You know, those uh, paraspinal area, pushing back into that, because a lot of people can't get that. They'll get belly breathing, but not inflation, of the obliques, the paraspinals, particularly deadlifting. A lot of people with back pain, it's a lot of times an issue of being able to push all the way through there. And so it can be a great actual cue for that. So there could be an application for some people that aren't lifting that much still. They certainly, if they're lifting, they don't need to rely on that. And we should be spending time without that. Another great way I love to do to practice that is to do pause squats with yeah. a long pause, like five seconds. one. Two. Oh, three, like a
1: long second. Four.
0: <laughs> five. Yeah. OK. And now squat. without like releasing and dropping further and coming up, like just firing out of that, you're going to have to stay braced and learn how to integrate that into your pattern. Very well. So that's a great way to teach people and they will have tremendous carryover from doing that to deadlift squats, whatever. Now, common mistakes. Most common mistake is people wear it too tight. They think they're relying on the, using the belt. You should at any time be able to slide some fingers, you know, two fingers down in between your belt. So if we've got too tight and we're compressed and pulled in, you can't inflate properly. And so we'll see breakdown from that. That's the most common mistake I see. We have a custom belt uh, made for us, by the way. It's a fabulous, uh, fabulous belt. A lot of belts feel a little uncomfortable because where they overlap, there's a big gap. And so we also, from a, you know, from a movement perspective or whatever you want to call it, there's a, a little bit of a leak there. If we've got like a half inch gap drop off besides just the uncomfortableness so we have what we call a shaved belt. So it's a lever style belt, but the inner is shaved down to where basically that overlap is imperceptible. So it really takes away when it's way more comfortable, but it's also the belt that's going to give you the best ability to pressurize correctly without any energy leak. So, yeah.
1: You know. And then just to wrap up, like what's your training looking like these days and what's your recovery looking like?
0: So this year I am focused, you know, I've been doing big feats of strength. I retired from powerlifting. So I've been training for 30 years. I competed in powerlifting for 16 years. Eight of those I was ranked number one in the world. Set a lot of all-time world records. I retired three years ago, but have continued to do like feats of strength, things that I'm passionate about. I've been lifting a long time. I just don't like, you know, I want to do things on my terms and those are all surrounded by fundraisers for charities that we believe in. So it'll be a big thing and it'll be a push for, for that, that we use our exposure and our platform to grow that. And that's what I've been doing to do some of those feats of strength. I was carrying around way too much body weight. My blood glucose was getting a little out of control. And, uh, I was like, I just need to clean things up and spend a year. I've got like one big last one I'm going to do in 2020, but I'm going to spend a year cleaning, cleaning myself, my diet up, I train on an annual training cycle, anyway. Um, annual. So, yeah. So. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I mean we we look out and know like what what big feats of strength I want to do, vacations, seminars, travel, all this sorts of stuff, and you backtrack all your training off of it. And you've got different blocks of training. So when I completed my last feat of strength, it was going right into this hypertrophy block. So I'm doing mo- kind of just a, I hit every body part twice a week and more of a general bodybuilder. You know, process not really smashing any heavy weights or doing anything like that right now. So that's the block I'm in, and then I'm cleaning up all my eating. And as you noted, I've this funny story. So I know we're wrapping it up, but uh, my goal was just simply change my eating habits and clean them up. And I've I've walked around for like five, six years before sub in single digit body fat. So it's not like it's going to be something new for me. But this time, you know, I, I've done some photo shoots, got leaned, magazine covers, stuff like that before. So I had like weight loss goals this time, no weight loss goals. It was just change my eating habits, eat better, eat cleaner. Let's improve some of my blood markers. And uh, about 12 weeks in, I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I just happened to have lost 45 pounds and (laughs) I am about the leanest I've ever been. I've definitely like, you know, six, 7% body fat ish in that arena. And I was like, wow. And I actually needed um, my autobiography releases in. June, the end of June, and I needed a new cover. Well, I didn't really, but I was like, "Well, we we thought we could get a better cover photo shoot." So, so I actually dieted for like two more weeks, and did a did a photo shoot, and uh, so the transformations online. So it's a fourteen week transformation from two eighty five to two thirty five, two forty, and I looked pretty good. <laughs> so yeah, so but it, would be but, the word I would use. <laughs> yeah, but it was funny. I mean, it's just like. I, that wasn't my goal. It wasn't my yeah. until the last couple of weeks. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm right there. I guess I'll just, you know, finish <laughs> up. Yeah. <laughs> so Maybe. that's just kind of my what's going on in my life right now uh, for training. Yeah. Uh, next March, I'll have a big V to strength. I'll ramp up, bring my weight up, and then I'll come right back down after that. So.
1: Yeah. What's the autobiography going to be called? The name uh, released yet?
0: The book title is The Eagle and the Dragon. It's a story of strength and reinvention. So for your listeners that don't know who I am, which I'm guessing is probably a lot, essentially I grew up homeless uh, in the mountains, foraging for food, killing animals, and a lot of really crazy bad stuff happened. I uh, performed really well in school, you know, valid Victorian, highest graduating engineering GPA, all that sort of stuff. But while I did all that, I took custody of my three younger siblings, raised all of them, getting them out of the environment that they were in uh while well, I got my degrees, got my math. oh I got a math. I got an MBA too. Um and uh throw <laughs> that
1: in there. <laughs> and, and, then,
0: and then advanced my career. And I did crazy, you know, I I was really successful as a as a as a business executive. And uh now I now I do this. Yeah. Uh, this one uh first blurb here is uh from Dr. Kelly Starrett, two time yeah. New York Times bestseller, author of co-founder of Mobility Watch. Yeah. If Conan, Cinderella, Clash of the Titans, and The Jungle Book had a baby, maybe, just maybe, you'd create the incredible story contained within Eagle and Dragon. Uh, I love
1: that. That's... This,
0: this one is uh, Chael Sonnen. He's a UFC a professional fighter, a promoter, and an analyst in that field. There's fighting for competition, and there's fighting for survival. Chris Duffin overcame homelessness and numerous insurmountable obstacles in his compelling story of his journal to become a world champion and pioneer in his field. Next one is uh, Mike O'Hearn, four-time Mr. Universe, Hall of Famer, actor, TV personality. Yeah. He says, uh, when Helen Keller was asked, what would be worse than being born blind? She replied, the only thing worse than being blind is to have sight without vision. Read this book if you want to find a vision for your life. So it's, not, it's a story, but it's every chapter is laced with philosophy that I've developed and that you can put into place in your life. And the yeah. last one is uh, from Dave Tate. He's an author, writer, founder of Elite FTS. Mm-hmm. Chris and his story are living proof that the power of will is no match for circumstance. So anyway, June twenty fourth is a published date. It's those are
1: plugs and testimonials to speak for themselves. Yes. This, yeah. So
0: it'll be uh, it'd be a great piece that you can put to place in your life, in your business life, your personal life, all that sort of stuff. So yeah.
1: yeah. Where can people find you? I mean, you have sessions all over the country, but yeah, where can people find you?
0: So Kabuki Strength, our main company, that's the easiest way. I also have a website going up with some of my other projects and the book. It's pretty limited right now, but uh, if you want to subscribe to find out when it comes out and all that other stuff, it's ChristopherDuffin.com. Social media, you can find Kabuki Strength or Chris Duffin everywhere. I really don't interact on Facebook anymore. It's Mm. it's completely dead, but uh, probably LinkedIn actually, or Instagram uh, are the, the biggest platforms for me. So mad underscore scientist, underscore Duffin for Instagram. Again, those links will be on the website too. And then uh, just Chris Duffin on LinkedIn, Chris Duffin on Facebook, Chris Duffin strength coach, I actually don't even publish anything on my personal Facebook. I haven't for years, Uh, but there's an athlete one. That's got some articles that come up every day and, and, uh, and my Instagram stuff will come across that feed too. If you like Facebook.
1: Yeah, You guys have super informative videos of breathing mechanics. Form, they're amazing. I've kind of head dove into them all. Yeah.
0: So we've got, uh, we do a lot of public content. Most of the depth of our content is, you know, behind our indexed paid website. It's like yeah. 10, bucks, 10 bucks a month or something. Yeah. And we do coaching, uh, virtual coaching around people, movement assessments, all that sort of stuff. So, yeah.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for joining. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Especially
0: it's been a with really, someone with such great really piece talk, of yeah.
1: strength. Yeah. <laughs>